Hello, friends, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Josiah Venture Stories. Gwen Gardner here, and for the month of January, we will be sharing the main talks from our last fall conference. Thank you for joining us for this teaching podcast. Generations change. They are always in motion. Often we are tracking the change, but sometimes change comes abruptly, like an explosion. There have been three major explosions over the last few years. The social media explosion, the COVID explosion, and the family explosion. How should we respond? We need to be giving young people the teachings of Jesus, the gospel, but we also need to bring them the healing of Jesus. Our annual 2023 fall conference theme was Lifeline, First Responders in the Anxious Generation. We brought in Dr. David Van Dyke, a marriage and family therapist and professor at Wheaton College to speak and train us all in what it looks like to be like Jesus for people in need. Our goal was to equip youth leaders across the region with practical tools to respond to the ever-increasing mental health issues among the youth in their ministries. Thank you for listening, and please continue to pray that we will be first responders for the anxious generation who are fully present, ask good questions, listen well, and point them to the love of Christ. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we want to glorify you. May our hearts, the meditations we have on your scripture, the things we discuss tonight, be glorifying you and good for us. In Jesus' name, amen. It is hard to follow the band. Uh, It's about goodness, God's goodness. It's about joy. It's about the hope we have. And my talk is about suffering. And I'm I'm not sure I I have this talk. And then I have another talk, and I don't know which one we're going to do, which is really exciting and scary. So this idea of anxious generation, I feel it in my body. Uh, Because suffering is something that we don't like to spend time talking about. We don't like to spend time doing. It's why I have a therapy voice, so that we can feel a little bit safer entering suffering. Um, And yet I think we're going to Try, are you willing to try with me? Um, this is going to be a grad. So this afternoon, morning and afternoon, that was um, high school. That's what I've learned. That's the right proper. That was a high school level. We're going to try something different and go to the doctoral level uh, in terms of teaching tonight. So um, I'm going to actually share with you things that I'm thinking through, haven't fully formed, um, but that have started to inform me of understanding the why. And it's the why I am twisted the way I am. The why I enter into suffering and have chosen that as a career. The why I think that's what we're called to, to meet our completion, is to enter into Christ's suffering, that then we fully understand God's love. Um, And it's it's a hard one. It's a hard word, and on some level, there's still a mystery. So this is one of those things where I encourage my students, don't ask questions you don't know the answer to uh, in therapy, because it only gets you in trouble. 
I think I'm gonna do that tonight. I think I'm gonna ask myself and I'm gonna ask you questions that I haven't figured out yet. And we're gonna struggle together. Are you up for it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's kind of what's happening inside of me too. Uh, yeah, okay. We're gonna try it and we'll see what happens. Um, thinking about God's goodness, I think of a book by uh, Rabbi Kirshner. Anybody heard the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? So there's this book that was very popular, written by a Jewish rabbi, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? I think that title is horrible. Uh, I think it's not good theology. I think the title should be, Why Do Good Things Happen at All? Why do good things happen at all? When we talk about suffering, it's like suffering is the anomaly and there's this something else. But I'm not sure that we understand where we're coming from and who we are if we think, why do bad things happen to good people? If I understand the goodness of God that the band led us in worship, God is good. He loves us. He saves us. He's beyond our comprehension. If I really believe that, and if I believe I am so separate because of my sin that no goodness resides in me outside of the love of Jesus, why would I expect good things to happen? Why would I expect good things to happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's often what we've been talking about in terms of the skills today of how do we enter in with people and soothe them and comfort them and decrease the anxiety and the anxiety, anxious generation that we have. There are lots of arrows and, and missiles, I believe. I was going to use stones, and, but it's missiles that are wreaking havoc. And the question we ask is Why? And I think we have a theology that might help us answer it, but we don't like the answer. And it's that, yes, there's times when suffering is the consequence of sin. But I'm, I'm struggling with this idea that, it's not, and this is not the idea I'm struggling with, the permanence of God, totally get it. Like there's nothing we can do to change who God is. God is permanent. By definition, he is perfect and he is unchangeable. He loves us and he suffers for us. If we have a suffering savior, if we have a suffering savior, either our sin created something new and God's permanence isn't permanent, or, and here's the exciting part for me, but it's still a mystery. So, right, hang with me. I'm working through things. Or there's something set apart. There's something holy about a type of suffering that we see in Christ. And I think that then if we have an idea of suffering that's not something we should run from always because it's always a consequence of sin, but it's something that we should see as holy and we enter into because it is the counterpoint of love that God so loved us that he sent his son for us that died on the cross for our sins. And that death was a suffering, that his love was partnered with suffering. What does that mean for us as we think about suffering 
And should we run from it? Should we avoid it? And I'm not saying we should like do the whole self-flagellation, right? Have the whips and we want to hurt ourselves so that we're more holy. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, is there a suffering and is there a stance that we can have in suffering that is holy? That's not about doing something and trying to get rid of it, but it's entering into it as a sacred space that is filled with love. So that's what I'm struggling with. That's what I'm wrestling with. And that's one of the reasons why I feel this professional calling, this personal calling, this spiritual calling of I enter into the sufferings with others because I see the reflection of the love that Jesus has for me in entering into the suffering for me. And there's something holy about that, that I get to participate in, in all the training that I have as a clinician and all the abilities and the research and understanding the brain and all that other stuff, that it gives me an opportunity to step into suffering, to be present in suffering as an act of love. How do we understand suffering and goodness? So I'd like you to do an exercise uh, with me. And this is from my friend, Jerry Root. Anybody know Dr. Jerry Root, C.S. Lewis scholar? Probably one of, for me, one of the strongest challenger in terms of uh, uh, being an evangelist. And he encourages me all the time in sharing the gospel. Jerry's, Jerry's a good friend. He sits in front of me in church and he goes, I love hearing you sing. He must have a hearing problem. But uh, Jerry has written a lot on suffering uh, and he did a counterpoint on goodness. And some of these ideas, this love and suffering, the idea that we are nothing in compared to God's goodness. And so why do any good things happen at all? It's because of God's love that he suffered for us, that we can be with him. Jerry has this exercise. It's a thought exercise. Think of the worst thing that has happened to you. Okay, so everybody take a minute, right? This is the bummer of the whole evening. We're going to think about suffering and difficult things that have happened to us. But everybody take a minute. What's the first thing that comes to mind as the most difficult thing that's happened to you? The worst thing that's ever happened to you. Got it? What's the next worst thing? What's the next worst thing? So think of the worst thing. What's the next worst, worst thing? Do you have it? Okay, now what's the next worst thing? Do you have it? What's the next worst thing? So we're four deep. What's the next worst thing? Everybody have it? What's the next worst thing that's happened in your life? We're going to go to 10. What's the next one after that? What's the next one after that? Starting to run out of ideas. What's the next one after that? Jerry says he's done this internationally and around eight or nine, we start to run out of things and it becomes similar themes. But then we go, think of the best joyful thing that's happened, a conversation, a moment in the car ride here. We had a view of the sunset that was beautiful. What's, what's the most joyous thing? that you've experienced. What's the next joyous thing? You see what we're doing, right? And when we do this thought experiment, there are so many more joyous experiences, thoughts, conversations, a smile, 
uh, a nod, the birth of a child, a friendship that the person calls you when you're sick and brings you chicken noodle soup, a friend that just knows what you need and texts you. I can come up with about 30, on the plane, I did about 37 joyful things, and then I just got, my attention got distracted, and I was like, I can keep going, but I'm bored, and so I shifted away to something else. But the idea is, what are we attending to? We can focus on the negative, we can focus on the painful, and it's right up front, but there's so much more as children of God, as believers, as lovers of Jesus who is loved deeply, there's so much more joyful things that we don't attend to. Why is the suffering the first thing that we go to? Why is that on the top of the mind when there's so much more joy in our salvation? So there's an inside perspective and an outside perspective that we want to talk about. It's kind of, and, and I want you to think about this of have I, uh, before the trip, um, I was hurrying around the corner of uh, our bed in the bedroom, and we have a wood post there, drilled my foot right into the bedpost, took the pinky, pinky toe nail, took it right off, right? <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, it, was, it was pretty gross, and we have white carpeting, so I was trying not to bleed on the carpeting and kind of hopped over, trying not to bleed to get to the bathroom to get toilet paper to, like, stop the bleeding, and I got to the top of the stairs, and I'm like, I need help. I, I'm going to bleed everywhere. Um, my life shifted at that moment. Now, I, all I could think about was my toe. You don't think about your little toe. Now everybody's thinking about your little toe, right? You're attending to your little toe. How much did you think about your little toe today? Until this moment. And now I've driven attention to it, and now you cannot think about anything but your little toe. It's kind of like that thing you tell your child, don't think about the color red. All you see is red. It's all we're attending to. But we have these little wounds. We have these little owies that affect our whole body, but it's a small thing, but that's all we're attending to. And suffering can be like that, that it is important. Even some of it could be set aside as holy, but it tends to be what we focus on and what we hold to, where the rest of the body, yes, is affected by that, but there's still a lot of goodness going on. My biceps were fine, right? My, my hairline was fine. It's always the same. Uh, but that little toe. So I had a lot of good things going on here. And yet my little toe is all that I attend to. So we can have a theology of suffering where suffering, there can be a good suffering. How much do we attend to it? Is that all that we're focused on? Because then we've lost the big picture that suffering, especially if we make an argument about holy set-apart suffering, is connected to love. We miss out on the love because we're stuck in the suffering. And as we work with people that are suffering, uh, my theology is like, I want them to experience love in the suffering. We, there's not anything I can do to take away someone's loss of a child dying. There's no amount of me sitting with them in the ministry of presence that will bring that child back. Nothing. So I am not going to change that pain. But what there is, is in that suffering, we can love each other well. We can love each other well. 
We can have an experience that is this whole body is responding to that suffering, but there's so much more joy. Now we'll get to the inside-outside perspective. Why do we suffer? There's lots of theories of why we suffer. There's lots of theories of suffering. We suffer, as Proverbs highlight, if then, right? If you do this, then this is going to happen. It's, a, it's wonderful. We have a guideline of you're suffering because choices you've made. If you honor your mo- mother and father, you will live long, right? Well, if you don't, reason you die young is because you didn't honor your mom and father. Um, right? We have this if-then in terms of Proverbs that's guiding the natural created order that in following God's divine decrees, there's a benefit to that. By violating that, there's going to be suffering. So yes, this is true. By choices do lead to some suffering. But I would posit not all suffering. So then what else leads to suffering? My relationships, me choosing to be in relationship with Tara can lead to suffering by things that she does. I don't have any control over, but that happened. She's hit by a bus. I suffer based on what happened to her because of my relationship or my relationship with someone, they disappoint me. Or, you know, an organization disappoints me. And so it's easy to put all of my suffering on that. JV, being a wonderful organization, may at some point disappoint you. And you may have some suffering. Is that what you focus on? Is that the pinky toe that just then drives everything else? My context. We see this in the news, right? Our Ukrainian brothers and sisters suffering because of the context of war and decisions of others on a global scale. We have the sins of others. And then we have this kind of theology of suffering that there's also this thing that's something bigger. And that's what we're going to dive into tonight in terms of Scripture. But we're going to go back to Gethsemane and look at suffering that Jesus experienced that was something bigger. It was not his own doing, but there was something bigger going on that he suffered for us. And then we look at Job, and Job suffered not because he wasn't righteous, but there was something bigger going on in the spiritual realm that Job was a part of and was having purposeful suffering, but it wasn't directly connected to him being sinful or his kids being sinful, as we see in Job 1, he offered a sacrifice every morning just in case they sinned in their hearts. So he was covering covering the gamut to make sure that they were living righteously, and he still suffered. And we're going to delve deeply into Job because that's what we do when we talk about suffering. And then there's cultural and religious reasons for suffering. There's the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. There's three wisdom books. You all know this. And, um, but we have Proverbs, which is the if-then of connection of our behavior affects uh, and is the cause of sin. And this is what we see Job's friends, we're going to get to it, but Job's friends are living out of this position. They're living out their cultural and religious teachings of there must be something you're doing because this is happening. The if-then, they're living out a Proverbs wisdom. So it makes sense, right? I can validate that. Yeah, it makes sense that you would spend 30-odd chapters arguing of like, you must have done something. I didn't do something. You must have done something. I didn't do something. And they just keep going back and forth. 
Have you ever, have you ever just read through Job? It's, it's hard going through those arguments, right? I like the first three chapters. I like the end chapters. The middle parts, it's like, yep, suffering, 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 accusation, 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 defense, defense, accusation. I wish I was dead. And then God speaks. Uh, and we kind of have that flow for Job. In between, we have the wisdom literature of the critic and the author in Ecclesiastes. And the critic and the author are talking about everything is basically hevel, right? Everything is basically mist and vapor. If you, uh, I was at the hotel this morning looking out, I got up way too early, and looking out over the valley, there was this beautiful mist that was just below the mountaintops. Oh, just beautiful. And then the sun came up and it's gone. And it was a very different looking landscape. It was only there for about 30 minutes. Well, it's probably there longer, but I was only up 30 minutes before it went away. Uh, but it was, it was something that I enjoyed. I could not grab it, right? And it was kind of, it's there and then it's gone. And this is what Job, this often gets translated as meaninglessness. In, in English Bibles. I don't know about your, uh, your translations, but there's like, everything is meaningless. You hear that from Ecclesiastes. The actual translation is more, life is a vapor, life is like smoke, or, and it's fleeting. It's hard to hold on to. You see it, but then it's gone. And so we have wisdom literature that there's causal connections between sin and suffering in our behavior. We have the argument and the, the theory that everything is meaningless. Uh, good people die horribly. Horribly pe horrible people have wonderful lives. Lots of money have very peaceful, die in their sleep. It's wonderful, uh, right? And so what's this all about? And the end of Ecclesiastes, and God is still good given this vapor, given this kind of pause uh, that only happens for a moment. And then we get to Job. And Job, there's more going on than we see. There's more going on than we see. Our suffering is more than what we see. And we, we don't get an answer. The frustrating, so let me spoil it for you, right? If you haven't watched the whole of Job, I mean, read the whole of Job, let me, let me give a spoiler of God is good and God just says, You've forgotten who I am. It's basically the Lion King. You've forgotten who I am uh, because you, uh, you've forgotten who you are before, because you've forgotten who I am, right? That was the Mufasa thing. He comes rolling on the clouds and he, the monkey hits uh, Simba on the head to get his attention, Rafiki, his little friend. And he says, you've forgotten who you are because you've forgotten you're a child of the king. You've forgotten the king. And for us, that's basically what God's saying in Job is like, You've forgotten your place. Can you hold the stars in the heavens? Can you create? Can you tame the Leviathan? He's like, remember your place. So it's not a real empathetic answer, right? It's kind of like, yeah, you're suffering. I get it. There's something bigger. Don't forget who I am. So we have these examples for us as clinicians and first responders that lead us to some questions about suffering and our stance with it. You with me so far? So let's go to Matthew. And I'm going to start a little bit earlier than that. So on their way to the Mount of Olives, after they sang a hymn and finished the Passover, Jesus told them specifically to Peter, but to all the disciples, tonight, all of you will desert me. 
wait, what? We just had this wonderful Passover meal. A couple days ago, you rode in triumphant as the Messiah, and now you're listing out, you're going to desert me. And he says, for the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will will deny me three times that you even know me. Peter, no, right? I love, I exclamation, no. Peter insists, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Yeah, what Peter said, we're with him, yes, right? So they're all saying, no, we'll go to death for you. And then we read earlier today that Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over, go over there to pray. And he brought his close friends with him and he prayed and they fell asleep. So we see Passover meal, long, tired. Then he goes into predicting his death and then predicting their defiance and denial. And then he goes and prays with them, and he says, I want your ministry of presence. I want you to be with all that difficult things we just talked about. Be with me while I suffer. So thinking about theology of suffering, what's that suffering about? Is that suffering about the love he has for us and seeing what's coming and entering into that love, but struggling with it of like, I'd rather not. I'd rather not suffer, but I'm going to, and I want all of you, my closest friends, to be part of that with me. Is that what this suffering is about? This suffering is about the sins, our sins, that are putting God in a place that this is how he's choosing to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself, that he's willing to love us so much that he'll suffer, and he wants us to be part of that. All of these ways of thinking about suffering affects how we respond because we're not going to do anything that can get rid of the suffering. We're not going to be able to stop the suffering or the effects of war that have led to the suffering that's happening for our friends in Ukraine. They're not going to change the the loss that people have in the death of a child or a broken relationship or a violation in friendship or a drunk driver accident. We can keep on going of the list of all the suffering that's there. We can't change any of that. And yet we're invited to understand suffering in such a way that we enter in, that we enter into it with people. And I had the privilege, and you had the privilege of being able to do that today as we had questions and we listened and we had the ministry of presence to enter into a moment of suffering. And it's hard. We don't want to be there. We want to shut it down. We want to make it okay. We want to move. But I I ask you, is that love? Is trying to quash it, trying to solve it, trying to move from it? Is that love? Is that the love we experience from Jesus? Is that the love that we're called to? And if not, what does that look like with our youth, with each other? In those moments when pain happens and we can't necessarily do anything about it, but we're called to lean forward 
lean in, get close, and enter in together. So let's, let's first look at the story from Jesus' perspective. There's a big event coming up. He's preparing others for it. He's preparing. He's going to be gone, not with them much. He's traveling. He's inviting his friends to come alongside. He's doing a lot of prep work for the suffering that's coming up. He's inviting people to enter in. Do you see that with those kids, with those friends, with those loved ones that you enter in? They're, they're preparing, they're asking you to come in. And they're saying, I'm deeply grieved. I'm suffering. I want to be vulnerable with you. Are we able to enter into that space? Are we vulnerable, honest with God? We see Jesus is in his suffering. He's honest. He's vulnerable. He's laying on the ground, crying out, I'd rather not do this. And he's doing that, not sinning. He's responding to the suffering in an honest, emotional, relational way. We have a view, we have a vision of it, of how we might respond to the suffering in our lives as Jesus suffered. We ask, we see Jesus asking for others to come and be part. They failed him, another suffering, and he doesn't shame. He, again, bids them to be part even as there's disappointment. How do we respond when people disappoint us and aren't there for us, our teammates, our friends, our family, the kids we work with? They're so not appreciative. Look at all that you do, even coming to this conference. You give a lot of your life for these kids and they don't appreciate it. Ugh. What's our response? I mean, that's a minor suffering, but that's a suffering that we have. How do we respond? This is where we have the ability, as we see in Jesus' response, to respond to suffering in a different way. Now we'll go to his friends and look at suffering, look at the story through his friends. They're emotionally exhausted. They're physically tired. Their stomachs are full. It's late at night. Kind of like sitting in an auditorium after a whole day of class. And as, as they, I can imagine they got the nods, you know that, and yawning. I've seen some yawns. It's, it's hard to attend. I, someone asked me, how are you doing? And I'm like, I have basically three neurons left that are firing, and I'm just hoping that they rub together to make a little bit of a thought fire because um, it's been a long day. But it doesn't change. We still had a, a session tonight. It does, that doesn't change. How do we respond to it? We can't, we can't change it, so how do we respond to it? And that's where we have the power of we want to be, and, and we're going to fail in our responses. And that's what we see as friends. They want to be with him, and they fail. They want to understand, and they don't get it. And they get overwhelmed emotionally. I believe our, uh, what are y'all called? Our hosts, the humor people. <laughs> MCs, yeah, that's right. I told you, three neurons, right? I'm holding on by a thread. Um, talked about triggers. They're, they're emotionally triggered. It's like we've thrown away our careers to follow this man. Now he says he's going to die, right? It's overwhelming. How do we respond to that? And they give us an example of not doing it real well. I like to think about this story of my clients are Jesus uh, and I am a friend, 
and I'm trying to do things well, or I'm a first responder and I'm gonna fail miserably. And I appreciate the grace of those that I work with, like the apostles experienced the grace of Jesus of keep on trying, stay with me. There's a, there's a following the people that we're working with that if we take that stance, even though we ask the wrong questions, Lastly, we're going to jump to Job. I'm not going to read all of Job 1 through 3, but I would encourage you in your quiet time uh, tonight, tomorrow morning, in the afternoon, that you read through these first three chapters of Job. Um, It's really, really interesting to look at it through the lens of suffering of Job and his friends and thinking of Job as a client or as a youth and you as the counselors, as the friends, uh, and read it through both lens. What we see first is, the first bit is there's a heavenly realm conversation. Is, God lo- is our love for God for, because of who he is, right? We sing that song, we love him because who he is. Or is it because what he does for us? And this is the heavenly conversation. Job's a righteous dude, right? And so let's look at Job. And Satan says, Job only loves you because what you do for him. You've given him a family. You've given him flocks. You've given him all the riches. He only loves you because of what you're a good uh, blessing dispenser. And God, uh, God, you're a blessing dispenser. And that's the only reason Job is righteous and loves you. And he's like, all right, let's, let's see if that's true. Does Job love me for who I am? or what I do. And we see that over and over again of he suffers. Uh, He suffers death of his servants, death of his livestock, death of his children, his home's destroyed. Uh, And Job's response is he didn't sin. He didn't charge God with evil. He cried out in his suffering, but he didn't sin. He leaned into the suffering. He leaned into the vulnerability and not knowing. It wasn't that it wasn't painful, but he, did, he understood who God was and therefore he understood who he was and the love from God isn't a function of anything but who God is. And he's like, God's love is enough. God's love is enough. And then Satan goes, yeah, but he still has his health. And you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And so he has his health and that's the reason he loves you. And God's like, all right, you can do anything, but don't take his life. And so what we see, Job's response, first his wife said, you should just curse God and die. Good, good support, right? We could also think of her as a counselor. Um, it's just like, you know what? Just curse God and die. It's better to be dead with God than living through all of this stuff. Um, and sometimes, I'm not going to lie, uh, it's just like, you know, it might just be easier. Uh, and that's not a, that's not an okay thing clinically or as a first responder to say. So don't, don't be Job's wife. That should be the first application takeaway. Don't be Job's wife. Second, uh, what happens is Job cries out and wishes never to be experiencing this pain. I'd rather that I had never been born than to go through this. And his friends as you read through chapter three, his friends hear about his suffering and they show up, 
right? And we talked about that. Showing up is really important. They provide the ministry of presence for seven days. They sit with him in the ashes. They sit with him doing the traditional mourning and grieving, and they sit with him by the fire, and they sit with him, and they don't say a word. Have you ever been quiet for like five minutes? Not me. I talk for a living, so nope. Uh, But some people say they can be quiet for five minutes. It feels like an eternity. Try seven days. So from now until next, what day is it? Tuesday. Until next Tuesday, don't speak. That's how long they stood. Pretty good, right? I mean, they did pretty good clinical skills of the ministry of presence. And then they couldn't take it anymore and they got into the why. Why do you think this is happening? And they start asking theological suffering questions, and they live in basically Proverbs. You must have done something. Your kids must have done something. Your wife must have. Somebody did something for this suffering to happen. They were completely wrong, and they were told off by God later on in the book. Again, spoilers. But I'm challenged by this all the time. I see Job suffering, and when I suffer, I want to have that response that I cry out, I suffer, yet I don't sin. I desire for that response for suffering in my own life. I hope, I hope that's what you would want too because you understand who God is and therefore understand who you are and how precious and how outrageously you are loved by God. That, the, that suffering does not equal the outrageous love that he has for us. And part of that love is suffering for him. And I don't want to be Job's friends, where I'm a good counselor for a little bit of the time, and then I lose my mind because I just can't take the amount of suffering. Have you ever been in that situation? It's like, I I had that about a month ago. There was a weekend where there was three deaths that touched people I love in my life. And it was like, I wrote in my journal, God, enough. Just enough. I don't know if I can take it. I'm tired. I'm tired of grieving. I'm tired of calling my friends and family. I'm tired. Enough. I want to have that response and not a response of bitterness, not a response of blame. And as a counselor, when people say, I've had enough, when teenagers say, I have enough, I'm exhausted. I don't want to live anymore. I want to enter into that space with them, not in an anxious way of trying to fix it, explain it, but to be present with them, loving them because of my theology of suffering and who I am because I know who God is and he loves us outrageously. He loves us outrageously. That that's enough. And yet it doesn't feel like happiness. It doesn't feel like uh, a dopamine hit, so I'm not feeling depressed. It's hard. And yet we have this example encouraging us when we're suffering, how to respond in holy way. And when we're a counselor, when we're a first responder, how to respond in a holy way. So when our teenagers are suffering, and did you know teenager is 13 to 25? So there's a bunch of teenagers in the room, right? Who's my 25 and under people? All right. Yes. Fun fact, you know your brain's not fully developed? 
totally, right? Yeah, that's using logic, but no judgment. You probably shouldn't say that out loud. Yeah, well, that's exactly why it's a teenage brain, because what we have is this beautiful prefrontal cortex, right? And this prefrontal cortex uh, is judgment. And when we're a teenager, there's a little black hole here until we're about 25. It's fascinating. In the U.S., in the U.S., car rental places know this. They know neurobiology because they will not rent a car to anyone under 25. Now, they do, now actually, they don't know the neurobiological research. They know actuarial tables. And anyone under 25 is greater likelihood to make bad judgments and crash the car and be expensive to them. And so they're not renting because you're expensive because you're making bad judgment. Neurobiology, right? So we have, we have, interesting, I could talk development. It's so much fun. I love you. Anybody 25 and under, I love you more uh, because it's just so much fun to work with you. Um, and you say things that are awesome. So our application is uh, suffering. So when I respond, I'm not necessarily assuming the teenager, it's his or her doing. It's his or her behavior or fault. Um, I'm trying not to blame. I'm trying to find a clear reason. So these will be on the PowerPoint that you have. Um, youth pastors, these are the things that we had you work on. Come alongside, comfort, sit with them. Can you sit with your, client, your teenagers for seven days in silence and just let them rant? Someone asked, what do you do when they don't stop talking? You sit quietly with them for seven days. Oh, I don't want to do the biblical model. I want to do something different. So the plan is to love, console, comfort, bear witness to their experience, listen actively, and weep with them. Spend time entering into that experience with them. Our assumptions then in terms of theology of suffering is whether it's based on our culture, teachings, are we claiming you did this? It's sin. That's why you're suffering. I think we have to be careful. It may be, but I think we have to be careful because we saw Job's friends. They weren't careful and they were in trouble because they were saying about things, the why that wasn't necessarily happening. Criticism, blame, judgment, rather than empathy with feelings and experiences. And timing matters. Speaking biblical truth to them is really, really important. Timing matters. Knowing that everything works for good is important. Timing matters. So the skill sets that you already have, the grounding in truth that you have, that we are outrageously loved and we see that in who God is and how he loves us through Jesus, that's all true. And the timing of it's important. As Dave talked about, the healing is in Matthew 10 and Matthew 9, it's complete healing. And oftentimes we see Jesus in Mark healing blind people in lots of different ways, spitting into the mud, putting it on their eyes. The mechanism isn't important. They were healing the physical ailment that then had a spiritual reality that they could enter into. We want to be in that place. Timing matters. So application, we'll run quick because that's what we do, right? Application. Uh, careful about jumping to conclusions. 
Follow the student's lead. I think about this. My father-in-law, amazing godly man. He was like a gazelle up mountains. And I, I have to take Diamox to even kind of visit them on the mountain because I live, my people live below sea level. I get uh, really altitude sick. And so he would take me on hikes, but he would lead from beside or behind. He would go my pace and he could have been up and down the mountain four times by the time I got about halfway. And for him, hiking with me wasn't about the outcome. It was about being with me in the journey. How are we doing that? How are we walking with people and leading from behind, leading from beside, because we know the path, but we're not in a hurry and we want them to experience it and we're with them in the experience. Be present, listen, be curious. We have a suffering savior who understands us, our suffering, and loves us outrageously. I can't say that enough. He loves us outrageous. It's outrageous how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Recognize our limitations. Know when to refer, right? Have humility. You can't be everything to everybody all the time. You have your gifts. When it's outside your gifts, find someone else in the body that has those gifts. Remember and trust in God's goodness. As we sang and worshiped all earlier this service, remember and trust in God's goodness and he loves us outrageously. God is sovereign over all aspects of life, including suffering. And I think we're gonna end there. Heavenly Father, we just praise your holy name. We are loved by you. We don't understand it, and yet we lean into it. Help us to kind of work through what is the suffering? What suffering is caused by us? What suffering is bigger that we enter into that is about your outrageous love and you love, and with that love comes suffering. Help us to discern that, to be present with people in their suffering, because we are loved, thus we can love. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Thank you for listening to Josiah Venture Stories. For more information about who we are and our vision and mission, visit us at josiahventure.com and follow us on social media. If you have any questions about this episode or would like to get in touch with our guest, please email social at josiahventure.com. To help more people hear about this podcast, please leave us an honest written review or share this episode on your social media. Thank you, friends, and have a blessed day.